We're going to be in Judges chapter 6 this morning. Judges chapter 6. And uh, while you're getting over to Judges 6, let me just mention, uh, this is going to be my last Sunday with you guys for a few weeks. I'm going to be out uh, throughout the month of July. I will be back in August. Some of you got a letter from me mentioning that about every three years, our elders ask us to take a short sabbatical. Uh, The purpose of that sabbatical, it's not uh, just vacation, but the purpose of it is to pull away, to invest more deeply in my time with the Lord, and also to do some reading and research and some work that it's a little bit difficult to do when I'm engaged in the day-to-day, week-to-week work of teaching and preaching. So uh, after this Sunday, you're going to have the opportunity throughout the rest of the summer to hear from some other great speakers connected to Grace Bible Church. Kyle Cox will be here. Dusty Davis will be up here. Todd Berkey from our uh, Young Adults Ministry will be up here. And so I know that you will look forward to hearing from them, and then I will catch you again in August. We're going to start the book of Philippians in August. This morning, we're going to be in Judges 6. We are continuing our series on Old Testament leaders on legacy. And uh, as I was preparing this week, I was remembering a story from my life that connects to this passage. Uh, When I was growing up, the whole time I was growing up, we just had one dog uh, because we got him when I was about three and he lived until I was in college. He lived for 16, 17 years. His name was Brownie and uh, he was brown. We named him that because he was brown. Uh, He was about this big. He was a little dog, uh, part Pomeranian, just mostly kind of a mutt. Nicest dog you would ever hope to meet. He loved people. Uh, He was the kind of dog that would greet you enthusiastically at the door. We loved Brownie, but Brownie also had a flaw, and that is that he was dumber than a bag of hammers. And uh, so Brownie's problem was that he repeatedly got lost. I mean, all the time, if he left the backyard, he could not find his way home. Uh, Some of us, maybe you grew up watching the really old Uh, movie, The Incredible Journey, about the two dogs and the cat that track their owners across 250 miles of open country. Uh, There are animals that can do that. I read a few years ago about a dog that tracked his owners for 77 miles through the mountains. Read about another dog that found his owners six years after they had moved, tracked them down. Brownie was the opposite of that. Uh, If Brownie got out of the backyard, it was like he was in a whole different planet. He had no idea where he was. And so he would kind of look around and go, wait, what, what happened? And he would follow the first person who came along. So if somebody came up to the front yard or if he just kind of ran along and somebody was walking down the road, Brownie would just follow them home. So he would follow that person home. They would take him in and they would look at his tag and they would call us. They would say, hey, I think we've got your dog. So we would drive over, we'd get him, and then he would get out again, and he'd do the same thing again and again. I actually don't understand why we never fixed the fence when I was growing up, but that was Brownie. Get lost, brought home, get lost, brought home. Now, the reason I share that is because that is the pattern of the nation of Israel as you read throughout the Old Testament, as you read throughout the Scripture, and it's particularly the pattern that we see with the nation of Israel in the book of Judges that we're looking at this morning. The nation of Israel was generally a faithless people, right? God called them out of slavery in Egypt. He redeemed them through miracles and his mighty power. 
They get out of Egypt. They get out of slavery. God leads them into the promised land. And he says, look, as long as you obey the law, as long as you follow me, I'll bless you. Your crops will grow. You will have peace. You'll have victory over your enemies. As long as you do those things, I'll bless you. But if you wander away, if you worship the gods of the Canaanites, the idols of this land, then you will be cursed. Your crops won't grow. You'll be defeated by your enemies. I will judge the nation. And what you see is that over and over and over again, the nation of Israel incurred the judgment of God because they would go after idols, right? So as we, as we look at the book of Judges, there's this cycle that you see repeated over and over and over again throughout the book. The people wander off into idolatry and then they are judged by the nations of the land. In other words, God uses these nations of the land of Canaan to judge the Israelites. They conquer them. And then they cry out to God and they say, God, please save us. And so God steps in and he sends them a deliverer. In the book of Judges, those deliverers are what are called judges. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But then after they're delivered, they return to idolatry and then judgment and then remorse and then deliverance. This cycle happens in the book of Judges some nine or ten different times, just in that relatively short book of the Bible. Now, if you remember, the theme of the book of Judges is that there was no king in Israel, so every person did what was right in their own eyes. Judges fits in this period of time after the people enter the promised land, but before they have a king, right? So this is before King Saul, it's before King David. There's about 400 years of time where they're living in the land. There is no king and they go through this cycle over and over and over again. And so God raises up judges. Now they're not judges like we think of with a black robe and sitting on a bench in a courtroom. Instead, these are like people who sort of judge the law in Israel, right? So they may sit at a certain point in Israel and they mediate disputes, but also they're military leaders and they lead the people into battle against their enemies, right? So there are these leaders in Israel, right? And yet the people continue this cycle over and over and over again. Now, the reason I pound on this cycle this morning from the book of Judges is this reason. It's not just that that's the cycle of the nation of Israel. This is the cycle of humanity. This is the cycle of the human race, right? That men and women run away from God and they experience consequences for their sin, natural consequences and the judgment of God. And then they cry out, God, help us. And God continually sends a path toward redemption, right? Most, most powerfully, again, in the person of Jesus Christ that we see when the New Testament begins. Jesus dies for sin. He rises again and offers eternal life and salvation from sin forever to those who believe in Jesus. And yet we are a faithless people. And what I find interesting is that God steps in to redeem, but we'll see this in the book of Judges, that he doesn't step in and solve the problem of sin once and for all, right? He doesn't just step in and say, now the cycle's going to end forever and people aren't going to wander away. Instead, here's what he does. He says, now that you have been set free, now that you have been redeemed and I've called you from the darkness into the light, what I want you to do, you sinful, weak, immature people, I want you to go out in the world and call others 
from darkness into light. And so God's pattern is to use people like us who are immature, imperfect, faithless, and sinful to be his agents of redemption. All right, and I've always thought that's rather astounding. Right? One of the, the last things that Jesus does before he ascends into heaven, in fact, the very last thing, Matthew 28, is he calls his disciples together and he says, okay, I'm going up into heaven. I want you guys now to go out into the world and make disciples. Tell people about me. Teach them what I taught. Bring them to me. And then he ascends up into heaven and they, they look at the sky and they go, wait, wait a second, us? We're the ones that are going to be the agents of your redemption, but, but we're, they're people like Peter, right, who is rash and reckless, people like Thomas who is doubting, people who are fearful and weak, and God says, I want to use you. We're going to see that same pattern this morning as we look at the life of a person named Gideon. Some of you are familiar with Gideon's story. Some of you are not familiar with Gideon's story, but Gideon, I love the character of Gideon in the book of Judges, because he reminds me of me. Gideon is a guy that God says, Gideon, you're living in a very dark world, in a sinful world that is reaping the consequences of its sin. You're in the midst of people who are running away. And he says, Gideon, I want you to go and be my agent of redemption. I want you to be the one to step into this chaos and represent me and lead the people out of this dilemma. And Gideon goes, what, me? And I love his character because all too often, I think that's how we feel when we read things like the Great Commission, go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations. We go, wait a second, wait, wait, wait. Me? You don't know how fearful I am. God, if you knew how sinful I was. God, if you knew how hard it was for me to talk to my coworkers or my family about Jesus, you wouldn't ask me. That's Gideon. And that's us. And yet what we're going to see in Gideon's life is that God says, no, Gideon, I I mean you. Because God delights in using people like us to be his agents of redemption. So we're going to see in the life of Gideon this morning. So I want to begin with Judges chapter 6. I'm going to start in verse 1 and read through verse 10. Then the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord gave them into the hands of Midian seven years. The power of Midian prevailed against Israel. Because of Midian, the sons of Israel made for themselves the dens which were in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For it was when Israel had sown that the Midianites would come up with the Amalekites and the sons of the east and go against them. So they would camp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel as well as no sheep, ox, or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come in like locusts for number. Both they and their camels were innumerable. And they came into the land to devastate it. So Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the sons of Israel cried to the Lord. Now it came about when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord on account of Midian that the Lord sent a prophet to the sons of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, It was I who brought you up from Egypt and brought you out from the house of slavery. I delivered you from the hands of the Egyptians and from the hands of all your oppressors and dispossessed them before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not 
obeyed me. All right, so the setting of this story is the devastation of sin. I mentioned that cycle before. This is the fourth such cycle in the book of Judges. So the people don't learn their lesson. They continue to chase after idols and they continue to get judged. There's a lot of ites in the land. The Midianites, the Amorites, the Amalekites, the Canaanites, the Hittites. All of these ites and the Enes, the Philistines, continue to attack them. And yet they continue to repeat that cycle. They don't learn. I was remembering this week a a guy that I knew, an acquaintance of mine in college. I was a mechanical engineering uh, major And this guy would always show up on the day of a test or a major project and look like he hadn't slept for weeks. He would have a five o'clock shadow at eight in the morning. His eyes would be bloodshot and red and puffy. His hair would be disheveled. And we say, hey man, what, what, what happened to you yesterday? And invariably, you say, man, I was, I was up till four o'clock in the morning studying for this test or preparing this paper or whatever it is. And I, I only got an hour of sleep, but, but I made it. I'm here. And we were always puzzled by this because we were thinking, we have the same test you have. And we went to bed at 11. How did this happen? And come to find out that what would really happen is he was playing video games until 1 a.m. And then would go, oh, man, I have a test tomorrow. I better study. Study for a couple hours, fall asleep. But what was astounding about it was even getting lower grades on the test didn't deter this behavior over and over and over again. And we go, why don't you just start studying earlier? Oh, I don't know. You know, and he would just do this same thing over and over. It's like sticking your hand on a hot stove and going, ah, and then putting your hand right back on the stove. That's the Israelites. They don't learn. Because their hearts are sinful like our hearts are sinful. And so God judges them through the Midianites. The Midianites were a roaming band of like nomadic warriors. They would come out of the desert on camels. And what the text describes here is that just as the crops were beginning to grow, the Midianites would come along and destroy them or steal them. Right, So just as you begin to see that wheat look like, okay, we can harvest it soon, here come the Midianites. Uh, years ago, I tried to grow some strawberries in my backyard. I bought a little strawberry plant at Lowe's, and I planted it, and I watched as a little strawberry began to grow on that little plant. And I was so happy about the strawberry. Right, I saw it get small, or it started real small, and then it would get bigger and bigger, and it got, got you know, about this size, and then it started to turn red, and I would walk up and look at that strawberry, and my mouth would water, and I'd think, now I can eat this strawberry very, very soon. And on the day that I went out to harvest my strawberry, I walked out, and it was gone. And I looked over, this is no joke, right as I looked over, I saw a, a possum, right? You, you've seen possums, they're like large rats, right? And he had eaten my strawberry, right as it was ready to be harvested, right? So I tried to scare him off. And if you've ever tried to scare a possum, they just look at you like, you're kidding, right? Right? (laughs) And finally, he just kind of lumbered off. And I thought, man, I hate possums. (laughs) I hate them. That's the Midianites. Except the difference is I didn't need that strawberry to survive. They needed their crops. The Israelites needed the crops to survive. And right as they're almost ready to harvest, here come the Midianites. Year after year. And they take their crops. 
So the people are experiencing the judgment of God, and the text describes the Midianites like locusts, like a plague of locusts that comes and they eat and destroy the crops, and then they move on. And so they're desperate. Because of their sin, God sends them a prophet, and the prophet says, you want to know why this is happening to you? I told you. I brought you out of Egypt, and I said, if you'll just trust me, I'll bless you. But you won't. And so you're being judged. And again, this happens over and over and over again throughout the book of Judges. And so the setting right at the beginning of Judges 2 is that sin has left a trail of devastation through their nation and through their world, and they need the deliverance of God. And I I read Judges 2, 1 through 10, and I think, man, does that sound familiar or what? Because sin has left a trail of devastation in our world, often in our families, in our communities. And yet we keep going back to the same idolatry in our culture. It struck me this week, I I read an article about how Americans are generally richer than ever before. We have more stuff, we have bigger homes, we have more economic security in general than ever before. But you know what other statistic has been going up? Suicide. And yet we chase after these idols of security and pleasure and the next great experience or whatever it is, thinking just around the corner I will find satisfaction for my soul and instead what we find is loss and sadness and depression and devastation. And every day, those of us who know Jesus Christ, we walk into a world that is devastated by sin. You have coworkers and neighbors whose families are falling apart, whose hearts are broken because of sin. That's the world we live in. It was the world that Gideon lived in as well. That there's, there's, there's a swath of destruction that sin has created in their lives. That's the setting. So look at what happens next. Look at how God steps in to redeem. Verses 11 through 24, it says, Then the angel of the Lord came and sat under the oak that was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, as his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress in order to save it from the Midianites. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. Then Gideon said to him, O my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles, which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. The Lord looked at him and said, Go in this your strength and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. Have I not sent you? He said to him, O Lord, how shall I deliver Israel? Behold, my family is the least in Manasseh. I am the youngest in my father's house. But the Lord said to him, surely I will be with you and you shall defeat Midian as one man. So Gideon said to him, if now I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come back to you and bring out my offering and lay it before you. And he said, I will remain until you return. Then Gideon went in and prepared a young goat and unleavened bread from an ephah of flour. He put the meat in a basket and the broth in a pot and brought them out to him under the yoke and presented them. The angel of God said to him, take the meat, 
and the unleavened bread and lay them on this rock and pour out the broth. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord put out the end of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened bread and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread. Then the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. When Gideon saw that he was the angel of the Lord, he said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. The Lord said to him, Peace to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and named it. The Lord is peace. To this day, it is still in Ophrah of the Abia's rites. I, I, want, I want to point out a few things about Gideon then that we see. So the angel comes and says, hey, Gideon, you're the guy. You're going to deliver the nation of Israel from the Midianites. <clears throat> and we see a few characteristics of Gideon that I think we will all be able to relate to. And the first one is this. Gideon is fearful. All right, Gideon is fearful. I, I want to describe for a minute what's actually going on right here at the beginning of this text. It says, here's Gideon, and he is beating out the wheat in the wine press. Let me explain that for just a moment. Okay, now, now normally when you harvested wheat, you would thresh the wheat up on a hill, right? So you would stand up on top of a hill, and your goal was you wanted to separate the, the part of the wheat that you were going to use for flour. You wanted to separate that from the husk, which is called the chaff. Right? So you would stand on top of a hill, and what you'd do is you would take like a flail and you would hit the wheat, right? And so it would break that husk and separate the husk from the chaff. Then, because the, the husk was lighter, you would take the whole pile and you would throw it up into the air. You'd throw handfuls of it up into the air, and the wind would grab the chaff and blow it away, and the heavier wheat would just fall right to the ground where you could gather it and use it for flour, right? So you see the advantage of threshing the wheat up on top of a hill. But here's Gideon. It says he's in the wine press threshing the wheat. Now, a wine press was an indentation in the ground. It was like a circular indentation where you would place the grapes, and then they would stomp on the grapes to get the, the juice to run out, and it would run out from little channels in the side. So a wine press was under the ground, right, indented in the ground. So here is Gideon. Why is he doing this in the wine press? He's hiding. And who's he hiding from? He's hiding from the Midianites, right? So the very first thing that we see when we see the character of Gideon is he is down hiding his food because he's afraid of the Midianites, all right? So bear with me. Right as he is engaged in this hidden threshing, here comes an angel. And what does the angel say to him? Greetings, Oh, mighty warrior. All right, so the irony is thick. This is not a mighty warrior. This is a person hiding. All, right, all of us have fears, right? I, I like to think of myself perhaps as a brave person, but I, I have a fear in my life that I have not been able to overcome. I am afraid of rodents, uh, mice and rats in particular. I don't like to deal with them. And in fact, a couple of months ago, uh, my son went out into our garage to get food for the dog, and he came back in the garage and he said, uh, Daddy, there are uh, some rats in the dog's food. And we have a big tub where the dog's food, and, and someone had left the garage door open, and some little rats came in, and they had jumped up in the food, and they were in the food. So I walked over to the, the tub, and sure enough, there are two rats in the food, and I remember thinking, I don't know what, I don't know what to do at this moment, right? Like options, we could move, 
We could, uh, <laughs> we could burn it all down, right? So like, I'm sitting here looking, and, and like, there are a lot of things that I can deal with, but I'll admit that um, the person who dealt with the rats was not me that evening. It was my wife, <laughs> because she's not afraid of rodents like I am. Now, imagine in that moment, I'm standing there, and I'm walking back to get my wife to dispose of the rats. And an angel appears and says, Howdy, mighty rat slayer. (laughs) That's what's going on. Right? It, It helps you understand there's a little bit of humor in this passage. The angel of the Lord shows up, and here's Gideon. He's crouched down in the wine press, and he goes, Greetings, valiant warrior. And Gideon's like, who are you talking to? And the angel goes on and he says, he says, greetings, O valiant warrior. The Lord is with you. Right? And we're going to see Gideon questions that premise that the Lord is with them. And as we move throughout the text, we're going to see over and over, Gideon is a fearful guy. He's afraid of the angel of the Lord, right? And probably rightly so. When he asks, hey, show me that it's really you. And then the angel of the Lord takes this meal he's made, takes his staff and touches it. And the whole meal goes, poof. And then the angel disappears. And Gideon goes, oh no, I'm going to die. We're going to see Gideon express fear even as you move throughout the battle that he is called to. This isn't the first time Gideon, or the last time, excuse me, that Gideon will ask God for a sign. Remember, Gideon is the fleece guy. On the day before the major battle with the Midianites, he says, just to make sure, God, that that you really called me, I'm going to put a fleece here on the ground, and I want you to make the fleece wet and everything else dry, right? And so God does that, and he goes, let's try it a different way. I'm going to put the fleece back, and you make the fleece dry and everything else wet. And God does that too. And so Gideon finally goes, okay, I'll go. He's afraid because the task he's been called to is a fearful task. To step into this chaos of sin, to step into this battle with a a foe that is much more numerous than the Israelites and be the guy to lead the nation. He's afraid. And I relate to Gideon on so many levels. When I read the scripture and I read that I am called to be an ambassador of Jesus Christ, when I read that I am called to stand and be like Jesus in my family, in my community, at my workplace, in my neighborhood, to do that when we live in a world that is chasing after idolatry. And I say, but wait, what if, what if, what if people don't like me? What if this has a cost for my family and my kids? And I'm afraid, right? Maybe you can relate. So Gideon is called even in the midst of his fear. We also see that Gideon is is doubtful. Verses 13 to 14, his reply to the angel is this, Oh my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles, which our fathers told us about, saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. Gideon's question is this. Look, if God is with us, you say God is with us. Look around you. I'm hiding. I'm afraid. 
And I have a real reason to be afraid. This isn't an imaginary foe that we are facing. It's a giant army arrayed against God's people. And he says, you say that God is with us. Where is he? Because I heard all these stories about how God parted the Red Sea. I heard all these stories about what God did to Pharaoh to lead us out of Egypt. I've heard all these stories about how he sustained us for 40 years in the wilderness and how the wall of Jericho fell flat. And he said, I've heard all the stories, but that story doesn't seem to apply to me right now. If God is with us, where is he? Any doubts? I think all too often, we have a tendency to believe that if we are following Jesus, doubt will never haunt us. But it does. And I think all too often, like Gideon, we find ourselves in a position in our lives where we say, you know what, Lord, I'm, I, I want to follow you. I want to believe. I've heard the stories. I believe Jesus rose from the dead. I've heard it. But I'm telling you right now, I don't see that power in my life. So where are you? And what Gideon comes to realize is that doubt is not incompatible with trust. Doubt is not incompatible with faith. But instead, even in the face of the doubt, God is going to say, Gideon, I want want you to move forward. And you trust me. You keep trusting me. That the end of this story is going to turn out for the glory of God and for the good of this nation. Trust me, even in your doubt. I ran across a great quote years ago by Philip Yancey where he says this, doubt is the skeleton in the closet of faith. And I know no better way to treat a skeleton than to bring it into the open and expose it for what it is. Not something to hide or fear, but a hard structure on which living tissue may grow. If I asked every person to stop reading whose faith has wavered, I might as well end the book with this sentence. He says, look, all of us doubt. All of us wonder, where is he? I think often of Mark 9, this man who brought Jesus, his epileptic son. He says, can you heal him? And Jesus says, all things are possible to the one who believes. And the guy says what? He says, "I, I do believe. Help my unbelief. We face that kind of conflict. So God calls us to engage with our friends and family who don't know Jesus. And we say, man, I've been praying for a while. Where are you? If you're with me, where are you? He calls us to be faithful in our families, even when it's hard. And we say, you know, it's it's been hard for a while. So where are you? He calls us to speak the truth even when it costs us, or maybe to make decisions with our career and our time to communicate to our kids that we value Jesus above all other values. And we go, man, it's going to gonna cost them. It's going to cost them at school. It might cost them a spot on a team. It might cost them socially. And when it happens, we go, man, Lord, we, we tried to follow you. Where are you? If you're with us, why do we not see these stories coming true? And he's going to call Gideon, just like he'll call us, to say, doubt is not incompatible with following me, but I want you to trust me, even when you can't see. So here's Gideon, this fearful, doubtful, and thirdly, he's an insecure person. Verses 15 and 16. 
He said to him, O Lord, how shall I deliver Israel? Behold, my family is the least in Manasseh, and I am the youngest in my father's house. But the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat Midian as one man. All right, he's deeply insecure. And again, rightly so. He goes, what are you talking about? My family is the least in Manasseh. In other words, I'm from the least important family in this whole tribe. All right, and I'm the youngest one, and you're, you're coming to me. Right, and one of the things actually that we see, we see this pattern throughout Scripture. God consistently does this. He chooses the youngest over the oldest. He chooses the less handsome David over all of his older brothers. God consistently does this, and it relates to what he says in verse 16. He says, I will be with you. See, he calls Gideon because he wants to make a point even through Gideon to say even the youngest, even the weakest, even the smallest can be victorious if I am with them. Right, and Gideon ultimately is going to go to battle against 10,000 Midianites with an army of 300 guys with pitchers in their hands because God is with him. And he's going to win because God is with him. If you feel inadequate, if you say, man, I don't know the Bible well enough, I am too sinful, I am too weak, if you feel inadequate or insecure to do the will of God, join the club. All of us have a moment where we, or many moments, where we say, I'm not up to the task. I was thinking this week how how many of the dads in this room, maybe you've had a moment like this where... uh, you are sleeping in the middle of the night and all of a sudden there's a noise in your home, right? Something falls, something makes a funny noise and you wake up and you think somebody should go check on that, <laughs> right? Where's, where's my dad? You go, oh, that's me. And you walk out into that darkness and you think, what am I, I going to do? with this badminton racket, right? (laughs) I'm not tall. I'm not big. I'm not particularly strong or gifted in martial arts. Like, what am I going to do? But it's my job. Everybody else thinks around here that I can fix it, right? That's Gideon. He says, what what am I going to do? Look at me. And the angel says, it's not about you, Gideon. The power of God will go with you. And so you walk into a world just just crushed with the devastation of sin. You say, what am I going to do? If I had it all together, I could fix you. If I had it all together, I could save you. If I had it all together, I wouldn't have doubts and fears. But I don't. We go back to these words, I'll be with you. Matthew 28, what's the last thing Jesus says in the Great Commission? After he says, hey, you guys go out into all the world and you make disciples. And he says, what? Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And a few weeks later, the Spirit of God fills God's people and they are transformed into people who can speak the truth with boldness, even in the face of death. Because God is with them. 
right? I, I love the character of Gideon because I, I feel like I am him. Yet God says, I want to I, I push you and ask you. Remember last week, we, t- we, t- we talked about that, that line, if you were here, where your, your safety zone meets the unknown, right? We, we talked about that's where God begins to work. You say, you know, I sense that the Lord is asking us to, to make some sacrifices with our money or with our time. I sense that the Lord is calling us to direct our kids in a different direction that maybe they aren't going to like, and it's going to cost us, and it's going to cost them. I sense maybe the Lord is directing us to, to, to take a new step with our family. Some of you, for example, you, you've, you've adopted kids or you've fostered kids. Some of you have moved into this community, and you've begun to minister to those in need, and it's cost you time, and it's cost you energy. Some of you have used your money in ways to further the kingdom of God. That means you have to change your lifestyle. And so you hit that point where your safe zone begins to meet the unknown and you feel afraid and you feel doubt and you feel insecure. And God says, trust me, just walk across the line. That's where I'll begin to work. And so what we see next then is Gideon, despite his fear, despite his doubt, despite his insecurity, he obeys. He he obeys. I want to read to you verses 25 to 32. Now, on the same night, the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and a second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal, which belongs to your father, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of this stronghold in an orderly manner, and take a second bull and offer a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah, which you shall cut down. Then Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had spoken to him. And because he was too afraid of his father's household and the men of the city to do it by day, he did it by night. When the men of the city arose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was torn down, and the Asherah which was beside it was cut down, and the second bull was offered on the altar which had been built. They said to one another, Who did this thing? And when they searched about and inquired, they said, Gideon the son of Joash did this thing. Then the men of the city said to Joash, Bring out your son that he may die, for he has torn down the altar of Baal, and indeed he has cut down the Asherah which was beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal, or will you deliver him? Whoever will plead for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself, because someone has torn down his altar. Therefore, on that day, he named him Jerubbaal, that is to say, let Baal contend against him because he had torn down his altar. Now, I love this. Gideon had already built an altar to God, right? He had this private altar called the Lord is Peace. But God says, Gideon, I want you to do something else. I want you, your dad has an altar to Baal in the yard. So I want you to take your dad's bull, tie it up to the altar and get another bull, knock down the altar of Baal and the pole of Asherah. Asherah was Baal's consort god. Right, knock them all down, and then I want you to take the wood from the Asherah pole and pile it up on top of where the altar was and put a bull on it and burn the whole thing. Right, so you can imagine Gideon's like, man, that is uh, not going to go over well in a place where everybody worships Baal. So he does it at night. He grabs 10 of his servants and he goes, okay, covert mission. We are going to go 
and we're going to do this deal. So the guys, the guys do it. And the next morning, everybody wakes up and they go, what happened to Baal? Right? He's crispy. He's charred. He's gone. And they ask the servants and somebody lets it slip, right? It was Gideon. And all of a sudden, everybody's ready to kill him. And I, and I love what happens. Gideon's dad stands up. Now, because he had an altar to Baal in his yard, there's a good chance, actually, that Gideon's dad was a priest of Baal. But he stands up and he goes, what, you're going to kill him? If Baal has any power, Baal will kill him. And so they rename Gideon, let Baal contend against him. I love that name. Jerubiah. Let Baal fight him. What Gideon does, uh, he's still afraid, but he does what God asks. And what we'll see is that that's the pattern of Gideon's life, actually. He's still afraid, but he does what God asks. He's weak. He's doubtful. He's going to vacillate between fear and doubt and insecurity throughout this entire time, right? Gideon goes out to battle with thousands of people, and God says, hey, that's too many people. And Gideon's looking and he's like, they've got 10,000. I'm not sure that I've got too many. God says, you're going to whittle it down. They whittle it down and they whittle it down again until there's 300 left. Right? It's no wonder Gideon is afraid. It's no wonder Gideon asks for a sign. But he still does what God asks. That's one of the things I love about this story about Gideon is, is you've got this guy that goes, okay, God, it doesn't look like you know what you're doing. But I'll trust that you do. And so he steps out in faith. God is calling you and me to have an impact in our community and in our world for Jesus Christ. And we don't feel ready. We don't feel powerful. We don't feel strong enough. And he says, just, just take the next step, right? Just take the next step and trust me. I will be with you. The spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead goes with you to work, goes with you home today, goes with you into your family context where you will be called to step across that line and say, I'm going to trust God to begin to work. Question as we close then is this, will we boldly obey God's call on our lives despite our fear, despite our doubt, despite our insecurity? Will we trust him? My, my sense for many of us in the room is that there may be some area of your life where, where you have, have sensed God leading you to take a risk. Maybe it is to to share the gospel with somebody that you've interacted with for a year or two or more, and you're afraid. And the Lord may be saying, "I I want you to step forward across that line and trust me. And it may be that there's a new pattern you need to set for your family, some countercultural pattern. All right, we say, you know what, I'm going to spend a part of our summer serving instead of all of the summer playing, right? Maybe it is that there is some pattern for your career. You say, the Lord may be directing me in a new way with my job or with our money. 
to pursue him in a way I haven't before. And, and you know it, and yet you're still standing kind of on this side of that safe zone line, and you, you go, I don't really know what's going to happen. And God says, just take the next step. It's okay to be afraid, because we're all afraid. We all doubt. We're all insecure. But that's what God delights in doing, is using fearful, doubtful, insecure people to show his power and his strength. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for your word. We are all too often like the people of Israel. We are, we're faithless, and yet you're faithful. We sang it this morning, great is your faithfulness. Oh God, our Father, your faithfulness is, is great and extends to the sky. And so we pray we would trust your faithfulness even in the midst of our fear, your strength in the midst of our insecurity, your plan in the midst of our doubt. Lead us, Father. We are grateful for this time, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.